Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 25th, 2020. This is our last podcast of the week as we will, uh, like you, be enjoying Thanksgiving and the aftermath. Uh, I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, this morning, uh, the news came that quarantining rules laid out by the Centers for Disease Control may be weakened, that uh, new evidence or new information suggests that the 14-day quarantine is uh, too long, that it's not necessary, that uh, uh, things become symptomatic or people get this disease within six days. And so therefore, it may be that seven days is the proper length of a quarantine or 10. Uh, this would seem to be good news and a sign that the, not that the science is evolving, but that the understanding of the virus and its impact on us is evolving. And we therefore need to take account of that. But there are a couple of details Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, uh, went on and, you know, one of these sort of the, the superstar voices of the pandemic went on Squawk Box on CNBC this morning and said that um, the truth is that this uh, th- these data uh, suggesting a change in the quarantine time were, were known much earlier and uh, could have been relaxed much earlier, but they weren't. And there's a story in the Wall Street Journal in which one official at the CDC said, look, we know people aren't quarantining anyway, really. Like a real quarantine is you don't go out and you don't do anything. So some people are going out and doing things, so they need to do it longer or something like that. Like as a kind of punitive measure, if they're not really going to quarantine, then we need to tell them to quarantine for 14 days, which is an incredibly illogical thing. But you, you understand it in terms of certain types of public health guidance over time, like when they tell parents that until until the pandemic changed all of this that you know your children should spend no time on screens at all and the reason they say that is because what they what they're trying to do is get people to make sure their kids don't spend 5 hours on screens so they create a prohibitionist mindset so that you feel guilty if your kid spends any time on screens and you stop them from spending time on screens and this is the disingenuous nature of certain types of public health guidance and this, um, uh, the way in which people treat the American people like they're children and need to be controlled by children as opposed to being a self-governing society for whom these people often tend to work rather than, uh, you know, they are our employees, not our bosses, but we get very confused about this. So It's my not qu- a new phenomenon, I suppose, but anybody who's inclined towards social engineering will gear that engineering towards the least responsible members of society. Your mindset is that these people need to be controlled and corralled and harnessed. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, well, here's some sensible restrictions. Most of you will abide by them. Some of you won't. You'll, you'll go to the, the, the nth degree so that you can capture everybody. Isn't it since you just look down on people generally. Isn't it a version of um, the elite panic that um, James, Megs described um, some months back um, the phenomenon whereby there's a large public crisis and um, uh, public leadership, instead of actually going about directly addressing the crisis and fixing what's going on, they worry instead about people's response to the crisis and um, they, they gear their policy mistakenly 
toward the ways they think that the public will um, sort of not handle it well. But there, right. isn't there one, there's, there's an interesting thing developing now, though, that's somewhat new and kind of interesting to watch if you're a conservative. Um, our, our friend Jason Riley has a great column about this in the Wall Street Journal today, where he points out that all of the the uh, the list of hypocrisies by public officials with regard to COVID restrictions grows every day. But one of the things that's notable now is that a lot of these are liberal politicians who, who obviously by ignoring the restrictions for themselves or expressing a kind of contempt for their liberal constituency who've been going around mask shaming everybody else. So there's a there's a funny turn happening, I think, where the more you see the Gavin Newsom's and the Lori Lightfoot's and the Muriel Bowser's totally flouting the rules, their own liberal constituents are like, well, wait a minute, we're following the rules, too. What are you doing? So that's uh, that's, I think, part of why the cynicism in general about public health, uh, it's both a contempt for the rules yourself if you're an elite, and it's a contemptible view of of the public that they have when they issue these restrictions. Well, you know, with Trump's passing from the scene as the political leader of the United States in January, there is going to be a lot less cover for these people if things go on. That is to say that, you know, basically they could look, hey, squirrel everything by saying, oh, it's Trump. You know, look at Trump. He's so terrible. You know, he's saying use bleach, use this, use that. Meanwhile, you guys all have to do this and we're going to go to the French laundry and have, and I, Mario Cuomo, I, Andrew Cuomo, I'm going to have my mother and kids over on Thanksgiving, even though I just literally said to you, if you love your parents, you'll tell them to stay home. Um, Trump's place as the liberal boogeyman has given them a certain amount of leave for their arbitrariness, for the way that they uh, lay down lockdown rules, that people don't object to it because uh, they can always say objecting to it is is becoming the handmaiden of Trump in this terrible uh, world of people who won't take this uh, pandemic seriously. Well, January 21st, that's no longer going to be a relevant excuse. And I We've been talking for a long time about where the where the fault line is going to be when people really start turning on local, state level mayoral po- politicians who are laying down these freedom restricting rules, and when they are going to start being held accountable for the fact that these rules are often bizarrely arbitrary. A friend of mine who lives in North Carolina sent me. Uh, a text this morning saying that the new rule in North Carolina is that um, at a private tennis facility, you need to wear a mask outdoors, but not at a public tennis facility. Because, you know, the fact that it's a public tennis facility means that COVID doesn't go there. I mean, this stuff, you know, it's, it's like that you can't have 10 people in your house, but you can have 25 people in a restaurant. Um, I mean, there's the other, the flip side of that coin, <clears throat> one of one of my pandemic favorites, the Atlantic's Amanda Mull, who I've talked about on this show quite often, has a comment today. By, by, favorites, the, by favorites, you mean least favorites, I think. Precisely, yes. yes. It's, it's sort of a, a frustration read. Um, but she has a piece today making these very same points, that these restrictions are contradictory, they, there's loopholes that don't make any sense, and her prescription is close the loopholes, by which she means shut it all down. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, I am not in the habit of citing uh, Ayn Rand, uh, who I I find a very um, 
highly problematic figure. But there is, I will say that, you know, uh, Atlas Shrugged, which is by turns an absolutely dreadful piece of work and yet an extremely compelling kind of adventure or science fiction-y adventure story. Uh, her portrait of the uh, the sort of the rise of a uh, of a kind of liberal fascistic liberal state features exactly this, which is that every time something goes wrong in the regulatory framework of this you know increasingly unfree country, and the clear reason that something is going wrong is that the regulations don't work or they're having a they're having an unintended consequence the authorities simply double down. Like they don't, you know, they, the, the evidence is right in front of their face, but the point is the power, right? That's ultimately the point is the ability to exercise power, which is what Noah, you were alluding to. Again, I don't generally like (laughs) citing Ayn Rand, but that's the one, I would say the one kind of brilliant satirical thing in her, all of her writings uh, that captures something real and we see it you know we see it in Andrew Cuomo every day and when somebody dares say you know people are confused about the rules on schools and they says they're not confused you're confused and your tone is rude and if i could send the cops over to beat the crap out of you i would jimmy velkin okay, I mean, but that's to the, basically but but to the cops yeah. the saratoga county sheriff's office issued a very interesting press release uh, yesterday basically saying and this is a mild this is a, a interesting and mild act of rebellion saying we're not really going to enforce coming to people's homes at Thanksgiving and ticketing them or fining them. Like we think people's private space is sacrosanct. And I was like, that that's awesome. Like that's actually, that's, that to me was the first sign of what we've been questioning for a while, which is when will people start to say enough? Not because they don't take the pandemic seriously. Again, this goes to the earlier point you were making, John. It's not that we are saying drink bleach and never wear a mask. It's it's actually because you want to take the pandemic seriously that you, you have to be skeptical of officials who say one thing and do the other. It's not just that they say one thing and do the other. When The guidance needs to change when the science gets better. I, I, right. I, I do not doubt, but it is the tone in which the scientific wisdom is delivered. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot. You know, in February, you were not supposed to wear a mask. It was actually bad to wear a mask. Then it turns out that was because they were worried that there would be a run on masks and public and, you know, and uh, first-line responders needed the masks. But that's not what they told people. I mean, it was like a it was like a big lie. It was a big lie for you know noble, supposedly noble reasons, you know. And so when that shifts, and then Fauci and people have to acknowledge that they've done that, trust erodes by definition. And we are now at a pinch point where we need the American people to trust our health authorities with the rollout of the vaccines. We need seventy to eighty percent of the American people to get this vaccine to achieve herd immunity. And we need them to be able to trust what they are hearing is true. And the arrogance, the tone of the people who are issuing mandates and things like that militates against that level of trust that is necessary, that, you know, that the distrust may keep us under the numbers that we actually need for the vaccine to have the obliterative effect that we wanted to against the virus. You know, I think there's a complementary element 
to the leaders for whom making the guidelines are strictly about the power. And this is um, that portion of the public for whom the guidelines are all about security. Also, regardless of whether or not they're actually based on the science or, or move with the science, right? It's, it's that in a time like this, when you are scared and you don't know what's going on, to have rules is, is something to hang on to and follow. And, and so there is, a, there is a certain segment of the public that is willing to play the exact game in step with those who just want to make rules. So I think that that's a really important point because I think that's what's allowed a lot of people, certainly parents like me, whose kids have still never been allowed to go back to school for what going on nine months now, it's allowed a weird sort of bargain that is starting to crumble. And it's crumbling because, you know, I enough of us have listened to our mayor say the only reason our kids aren't back in school is that the science says it's not safe. The science says no such thing. And more and more people are seeing that the science says no such thing. But instead of being honest and saying, I can't get, I'm beholden to the teachers unions and can't get them to show up for work. They keep staging, you know, they keep throwing fake body bags in my office and staging walkouts, which they've done several times. Instead of saying that, they, the, they've tried to co-opt the parents into the safety message. And more and more of us are saying, this is bullshit. I'm sorry. This is not the science. This is a totally political maneuver by a politically posturing mayor who's beholden to a teacher's union. And it needs to stop. And the fact that Joe Biden just the other day said, oh, we got to reopen schools. Uh, I'll be really curious, as you said earlier, John, to see if the once Trump is exiting the stage, if people can now start talking about the things that many of us have suspected all along about the safety being cover for political posturing. Uh, and do you see Nick Kristoff had a column saying that Trump was right about uh, the school? About the school. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. Oh, well, right. yeah, op-ed writers can do that. Now. You're never going to see a big, you're never going to see a big city politician turn on the teachers unions like that if they're, be, if, if they need them for their, uh, for their right. re-election efforts. Now, but this is the political question of the next couple of years. We, we, we talked about this a little yesterday, but not in this negative frame, which is when the vaccine... Sorry, that's my fault. <laughs> no, no, no. When the vaccine hits, you know, let's say we, 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 we move past this period and we're, we're in the period for a year and a half or something like that. We move past the period and we already said maybe there'll be a kind of arrow of good feeling. People will be feeling good about the science and America and our innovation and there'll be an economic... There'll probably be some kind of economic surge in relation to it, and people will feel really good. But there is a counterweight to that, which is uh, this is a moment at which ordinary people have found themselves profoundly inconvenienced and their children harmed by the behavior of public sector employees, particularly teachers. And for 30, 40 years, as people like us have talked about the, the, the danger posed to the ongoing education of Americans by teachers' unions and the rules they impose and the orthodoxies they feel, there has never been a kind of populist counterweight to their political power because they're, of course, gathered as one. They're located, you know, they're sort of focused in cities and state capitals and stuff, and they will vote they will, you know, move heaven and earth to help their candidates. And there, there's no reason for urban politicians to do anything to stand against them because it's just too dangerous because there's no upside. Uh, you can see the downside, but it's hard to calculate the upside. I Things may shift here in ways that people don't expect. Uh, politics does shift. Sclerotic things explode. 
There could be, there's already, there's going to be a demonstration today in New York outside Bill de Blasio's house by parents. There, we don't know what's going to happen, but you can't do what's been done to 75 million households with children in them under 18 and then say, oh, uh, you know what? We'll just move on. Let's just move on. People are going to have long memories of this. This is a traumatic time for us. And maybe they'll want to move on and not think about it. Or maybe the explosion against it is going to come out in weird and unexpected ways with weird and unexpected consequences. (laughs) I'm not getting over it. I'm holding the grudge. Well, you're holding a grudge by definition. I know that. But I'm saying people who are, you know, who don't come at this with any priors are going to say... You know, it's like the teachers' unions turn into the DMV, or they turn into the they turn into that which typifies what people hate about government, and people really do hate government, including I mean, people who depend on government. I mean, when you when they before the onset of this pandemic, you know, the Spanish flu was the forgotten plague. Nobody wanted to talk about it because they didn't want to remember what they did during that period. But that's not to say there wasn't a political a political backlash associated with it. Like, we're not going to look back on this and talk about how, you know, we had to shut everything down and the body count and how our children suffered a lost year and all the associated trauma. But there will be political fallout from it. And, and people will refer to it in political terms. I don't know if the 20s are a really good. We talked about that yesterday. They're not a really a, a perfect parallel with the exception of speakeasies. Um, but, you know, there are lessons to be learned from the return to normalcy, which wasn't just about war socialism. Right, but I'm actually saying that the return to normalcy may, may feature uh, one, of my, one of my ongoing themes over the last four years is that people uh, continue to underrate and underestimate <clears throat> that perhaps the primary cause of Donald Trump's rise and success was the 2008 financial meltdown and the fact that it was never properly litigated politically either in 2008 in 2010 or in 2012 it wasn't Mitt Romney wasn't the vo- wasn't a proper voice to take up the question of 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 banking behavior and you know hedge funds and all of that obama didn't want to take responsibility for it and he came in afterward And so the notion that America had stopped functioning, wasn't working, and that everything was broken, had to wait until 2015 when Trump rose up and said, the Republicans stink, the Democrats stink, everything went wrong, this was stupid, Iraq was stupid, everything is a disaster. And it turned out that it was a very effective message. Those of us who thought that Trump, you know, was a clown or wasn't, you know, wasn't to be taken all that seriously or didn't mean any of it, missed this key element. And I don't know that we can go a year and a half or two years under the weight of this pandemic by the time it's really all over. And they're not being lingering political consequences from the behavior of politicians who didn't really ameliorate it. You could say that maybe that's one of the reasons Trump lost. He was seen to have not ameliorated it in the right way. But, I mean, that doesn't mean Andrew Cuomo is going to get off scot-free or Gavin Newsom is going to get off scot-free or these mayors are going to get off scot-free. Now, it's hard. The ordinary dynamic may not, uh, you know, may not be present here because these are often one-party places where this is happening. So that kind of 
rivalry or hostility or expression of decay is going to have to come from inside the Democratic Party. But but remember, Trump came from inside the Republican Party. I mean, you know, he wasn't really a Republican, but that doesn't mean that whoever could come along and blow up Andrew Cuomo's life or Gavin Newsom's life couldn't really not be a Democrat. That's my... But that it, I think it'll be interesting to watch how quickly all these emergency powers recede. Uh, I was just reading the new, the most recent order that my mayor here in D.C. issued, and, and there's it, it says these powers will uh, continue until December 31st, 2020, or as long as we decide there's a pandemic emergency. I mean, it's so vague, right? And so governor in Michigan has already been threatened, you know, faced lawsuits about this. At, at state and local levels, there are a lot of emergency powers in effect right now, which people have accepted because they understand the emergency is real. But I wonder, you, you said maybe it won't be speakeasies. I think there could be a version of speakeasy type rebellion. Remember, speakeasies developed because the rules about alcohol were so restrictive and weren't shared by the by the vast majority of people at a certain point. It was activists who got got that going. No, so no, you, I'm saying they're already here. We talked about yeah, it yesterday. Exactly, they're exactly. here yeah. and they're, the dispatches read like Lois Lipstick Long, bouncing from from party civic, to party and being raided by the police, literally. Right. But, but there are civic, there are other, like there, there's gyms who could just stay open, even though these restrictions are going on. There's restaurants. There, there's actually a lot of civic spots where these restrictions supposedly hold, where people don't feel they need to be enforcing them, right? So enough people do that and, you know, but if the restrictions are in place, they start selectively enforcing them here and there. People become very resentful of that. And I worry about that in terms of these emergency powers being exercised disparately. We've seen it in New York, obviously, in the Orthodox community. Um, but that could spread. Like, you could see that in other parts of the country, too. You know, I'm also reminded of this thing I pointed out last week when when Cuomo had that rant, that hysterical, ugly, disgusting rant uh, against Jimmy Valkin for how daring to ask him about the confusion over the schools. He kept saying, read the law, read the law. It's not law. These are emergency decrees that are being issued without oversight. There is no legislative oversight. There is maybe some court oversight, but the courts have tended almost everywhere to say that in an emergency, you have to bow to the executive. Like that's there's 240 years of case law about this in the United States, but they're not laws. And it's very important that they not be confused with laws because laws endure until they are, unless they are totally overturned. These things have to end. They have to sunset or they have to be killed off because then we really, that is, I mean, it's not fascism. I don't know what you would call it. It's authoritarianism. To live under emergency decree is authoritarianism. And we, as far as I know, are not an authoritarian country yet. Uh, Let me pull back for a second and talk to you once more about our sponsor today, Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. That's 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, because whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better, because if you're overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. If you need some help falling asleep, it has wind-down sessions that members swear by, For parents, there are morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. 
You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Uh, Noah, you were um, uh, taken by a comment made by uh, best-selling writer and uh, permanent talk show guest this month, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, author of, as we know, A Promised Land, uh, who uh, offered his pundit-like view of the shift in the Hispanic demographic uh, toward Donald Trump in the 2016, the 2020 election. Yeah, um, famous Grammy winner uh, <laughs> and a notable author, Bon Vivant, uh, Barack Obama, who appeared on a program called The Breakfast Club, which is a popular radio show, um, where he just offered you know a whole variety of thoughts. And the one that really popped this morning that caught my attention was his discussion of the Hispanic vote, where he said the following quote, there's a lot of evangelical Hispanics who the fact that tr- Trump says racist things about Mexicans or puts undocumented workers in cages They think that's less important than the fact that he supports their views on gay marriage and abortion. So that's how he's explaining away the fact that Donald Trump managed to improve on his performance among Hispanics. Um, There's a whole lot that's really obnoxious and condescending about this. Um, First of all, it's ridiculous. Um, The notion here, I mean, one of the places that Donald Trump did particularly well, surprisingly well, is Miami. You're telling me that Hispanics in Miami hate gay people? Have you been to Miami? Um, You're telling me Hispanics in Miami are evangelical Christians? Are evangelical Christians? (laughs) You're telling me Cubans are evangelical? I mean, I'm sure there are some. And indeed it is true. There are some in my wife's family. But what he's describing are Catholics, not evangelical Christians. More more to the point. um, Catholics also don't like abortion, I just want to point out. (laughs) But please go on. I mean, many Catholics don't like abortion. Um, I mean, Donald Trump gets hit a lot for saying the quiet part out loud. This is the quiet part out loud. Barack Obama, Donald Trump was not our first Twitter president. Barack Obama was our first Twitter president, by which I mean his views, his unguarded views on social issues are what we now deride as extremely online. They're very favorable to a, to an insular, narrow, uh, bitter, and uh, self-aggrandizing left. And he is of that, that class. Um, which is why we've been saying, and I've been saying forever, that Joe Biden's presidency will be a profound departure, not just from the last four years, but the last 12, because they seem so disinterested in appealing to this um, really condescending um, view that is native mostly to online forums. Hey, hey, There's there's another obnoxious um, aspect to what Obama said, um, which is that he... um, and it's not just him, but this whole discussion of the um, Hispanic vote um, this year avoids the question of if you are a recent legal immigrant to, or not even recent, if you are a, a an adult legal immigrant to the U.S., you have a particular problem with illegal immigration. Um, there is there is that sentiment that I did this the right way, a and b I'm inv- I'm so invested in my country now because because this is this is where I decided and worked to make my home 
that um, I am not interested in the left's running it down. But he doesn't even, maybe he doesn't even believe it. It doesn't matter whether he believes sure it or not. This is it. the, he might, this is the age of the exculpatory conspiracy theory. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be convincing. It just has we to know. absolve you of your lot in life. And Democrats now want to be told that the only reason why they ever lose is because the people who they're appealing to are ignorant Neanderthals. This is Barack Obama did this in 2008. Right. But well, that's my point. That's why you know that he means it. It's not that he doesn't mean it. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Christine, what is it? What does it evoke from 2008? The bitter clingers remark, right? right yeah. People and it, he is he is a particular animosity towards faith, people of faith, I think. Um, and that's yeah. that's extended well, here. Unle- unless they curse out America from the from unless the they hate it, right? Exactly, unless they're Jeremiah yeah. right. But he but it was interesting how uh, he's he's become the Martha's Vineyard cocktail party, you know, parody that we all feared he would be when he announced his you know multi million dollar uh, Martha Stewart or Martha Martha's Vineyard home, but I. I'm struck by how the other thing that happened yesterday is he did a TV interview where the the uh, interviewer began by basically genuflecting to him, saying, "I just want to look at you." I mean, it was like it was like, "Wait, am I watching a bad Lifetime movie? What is this?" Just just literally going, "I just just look at someone presidential." Oh, such a such a. I mean, there, there's a there's a sense in which the media, which might have thought it it, it covered its its hatred of uh, and supposed nonpartisanship uh, well did not. Now that Barack Obama's back, it's like they're just having, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't know, Lollapalooza for their feelings about a about a heroic and, you know, prophetic person, which he feeds right into, obviously, because he has books to sell. Did you know, by the way, that he wrote the book himself? I just want to make on sure yellow, you know on, on, on yellow pads. Exactly. Like a, a real writer. A, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be well, contemptuous, but I'm so sick of hearing about his book. Uh, the yellow pad, I believe Bill Clinton also wrote his memoir on a yellow pad, one of the most excruciatingly boring books ever written, by the way, My Life by Bill Clinton, um, which, of course, told you absolutely nothing about his life. Uh, I have not yet read Obama's. I've read the preface of Obama's book, and I am a, I am an admirer of Dreams from My Father, which I think is a very interesting and, and, and flavorful book. Uh, and I'm not the only one of our political ilk who has this opinion. Andy Ferguson, for example, called it a masterpiece. So it, you know, but he wrote it when he was a nobody. And now of course he's a brand and I'm sure this book is like, he's all, a prophet, John. now he's yeah. a prophet. Yeah. But like, like, like all, like all brand extensions, you know, it has to protect the brand at all costs. So any honesty or, you know, genuine candor that he might, have expressed under other circumstances, I'm sure, uh, are, are not present. It's just, you know, except to the extent that it's candid about how he thinks that other people got in the way of all of his wonderful things that he might, might have done. Um, you know, the other way of looking at this is that uh, Trump did better with Hispanics than people thought. He didn't win a majority of Hispanics. And this notion that, you know, let's say he gets 40% of the Hispanic vote as opposed to, you know, 30, or I, I don't even know how it's going to come down, or he gets it really interestingly distributed, right? He gets South Florida, he gets the Rio Grande Valley. I mean, he gets the sort of interesting places where votes switch to him from, you know, from from the Democrats in, in 2016, you know, one way to look at this is the American people are not monolithic. Mexicans are not monolithic. Hispanics are not monolithic. Jews are not monolithic. You can say that populations, what's the point here? That 100% of Hispanics should have voted for for Joe Biden? 
because Donald Trump said things about Mexicans at the border and, and did policies that seem to be hostile to to Mexicans and South Americans? Well, you know, people have all kinds of reasons that they vote. I mean, a lot of people vote because they don't like high taxes and they're worried that Joe Biden's going to raise our taxes or they're small businessmen. They don't like regulations or or they're social conservatives and they don't like abortion or they're so that nobody ever questions the but you're fact. engaged. I'm sorry. You're no. engaged in an analysis that would be valuable if your objective was to appeal to these people, correct for whatever mistakes were made. That's not what Don, what uh, Barack Obama is engaged in here. He's engaged in a process or creating a narrative to excuse Democrats from reaching out to these to say it's not necessary. These people are, are they cannot be appealed to, and what's more, they shouldn't be appealed to. They're right. anachronistic. But what I'm but what I'm saying here is that. Um, because everybody has this uh, insane uh, belief that people people only do things as part of a group, this balkanized image of America, the notion that in any given group, there will always be 30% of people who are not going to go along with the common because they're human. <laughs> You know, and they're going to think uh, otherwise or think in different ways. And, uh, and, and we also now know that we can't trust the data that we're getting. We don't know really how people vote. The exit polls are not going to be good either. And we're going to have real trouble understanding this. What we can see is raw votes in places where there are large populations or, you know, let's say uh, unrepresentatively large populations that might suggest to you that something interesting happened here. This happened in 1980. I've talked about this before that um, uh, Ronald Reagan got, according to the exit polls, 39% of the Jewish vote in 1980 because Jimmy Carter was viewed as anti-Israel. wasn't just viewed as anti-Israel. He was anti-Israel and, um, and all of that. Uh, But if you went to the precinct level in specific congressional districts where that were overwhelmingly Jewish. There are very few of these left, but that wasn't true 40 years ago. You got numbers closer to 50%. Uh, neighborhoods in Brooklyn, neighborhoods in Miami, various other places where the vote actually went like 50% for Reagan. You can't trust the exit polls on data about subgroups, and you can't trust polling about the data on subgroups, and we don't know how people vote. But there is a bias toward thinking if you say X, Y, or Z, then people are going to vote this way. And if you say, you know, if you're this, people are going to vote that way. And the only real case that we know this to be absolutely true is that uh, Obama in 2008 got, you know, I don't know, 95, 96% of the black vote, we're told. That may not, I mean, even there, that may not have been true. What if, what if, what if the um, social desirability bias effect in polls there? was that a black person wasn't going to say that he didn't vote for Obama, you know, even if he didn't. You know, who knows? I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, this is not a normal way to look at American politics. The way to look at American politics is, yeah, you know, it was a close race, and therefore in certain ethnic groups, the race was closer than people expected. And we call people Hispanic who are all kinds of different things. Cubans are not Mexicans. This is not that. That is not the other thing. Some some Hispanics are Catholic. Some are evangelical. Yes, evangelicals are pro-life, but Catholics are also pro-life and anti, you know. I mean, what on earth are we talking about here? Except this notion that we are only to be viewed as part of a larger group and that unless we behave like the larger group, there's something wrong with us. 
there's where our view is distorted. We are not we are not following the proper logic that our group identity requires of us. Right, and you know, so Obama was essentially saying, yes, I, uh, Hispanic Americans should function in accordance with the rules of this group, but yeah. they are also of this other group that yeah. does this. Mm-hmm. It's, he's he's the whole analysis is sort of you know. Well, look, Obama said, you know, they saw, they know Trump said these racist things and he put the kids in cages. Well, you know, Obama and the Obama Biden administration were the ones who first built the cages, which are now called cages because they're in order to make it seem like these people are being treated animalistically. The reason that they were cages as they were is that they were in these incredibly hot climates and people needed to be put into holding and they were put in open mesh areas in order for them to be ventilated like that's they're not cages that's nonsense but biden has brought that person back the person who first devised that policy under the obama administration is is back on his transition team now so it's not as if they're putting some huge departure from that policy well why didn't why didn't the mexicans on the rio grande uh, border uh vote against biden because he was part of the administration that invented the kids in cages policy how about that, Barack Obama? I mean, if you're going to go there, you you know, th- those people may know better than most people that that the policy dates back to 2014 and not to 2017, no matter what Jacob Soboroff uh, wants to peddle. So um, let's move on. As we are approaching Thanksgiving, we thought maybe we would take a few minutes uh, to talk about... Uh, Thanksgiving and gratitude and what we're grateful for is sort of thing that often people will uh, bring up at, uh, at large family gatherings that uh, I certainly am myself not going to. I mean, I think a bunch of us are going to small family gatherings. But in any case, um, uh, who wants to start? Christine, do you want to tell us what, what you're feeling grateful for this year? Um, well, my family, obviously, and that we have all survived lockdown uh, while actually getting weirdly uh, closer than we started, which I think has been an experience that a lot of people have had, that even though we are all driving each other crazy sometimes, that I have a very small house so and two teenagers and a dog, so we do sometimes really get on each other's nerves. But I am grateful for how resilient my kids in particular have proven themselves to be, and I've learned a lot, actually, a lot of patience by, by from them. Um, I, I'm one of those people who's kind of uh, temperamentally cynical about performing gratitude because of social media with all its like hashtag blessed and all this. And I absolutely loathe the, the traditions where you have to go around a table at Thanksgiving and, and say what you're grateful for. I always freeze up and say something, some platitude. But this is a year where platitudes actually are real, right? Like if, if you've lost someone, uh, you're grateful for the people who, who are still with you. If you've survived this crazy year with the pandemic, you're grateful for that. I mean, I actually think every platitude we can possibly embrace is, isn't even half enough. Um, so I'm just grateful that we, I'm also, this is sort of, you know, sentimental too, but I'm very grateful for you guys. We've had a connection every day, most days. Uh, talking about events that has really been helpful um, to think through all the chaos. And I hope our listeners feel that way too, but it's been, it's been good. It's been a bonding experience. So I'm grateful for that too. Abe. Yeah. um, Yeah. So, you know, normally I I sort of try to um, have actively sort of, you know, um, be grateful for, for the good things in my life. But so thinking about it for this year, um, I tried to focus on the the things that 
um, uh, for which I actually felt myself have the sort of neurochemical experience of gratitude for uh, this year, um, in keeping with what um, Christine was just describing. And, and, and I, I have had that experience quite a lot this year, despite it, it being so dark. Um, my health, certainly, um, uh, is, is nothing to um, take lightly. Uh, and my being employed, um, given what what is uh, you know the, the, this the state of the of the country, and echoing Christine again, you know, um, working uh, with you guys, which is you know not only um, sort of personally um, very gratifying, but we're also working. We work in a realm where you don't have to worry about what you say, and that is, I'm tremendously grateful for that because. So many of my friends and family who who just work in you know their non non journalistic spheres, non policy spheres, um, the the social politics of 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 the year make it so that they have to um, sort of you know stay buttoned up about who they actually are and what they feel and so on. Um, family and friends, of course, um, you know, I've spent I, I live alone, but most of my family is in New York, and I've seen them quite a bit and spoken to them quite a bit and uh my friends as well you know uh, spent a good deal of time with them uh this year for for um obvious reasons um i'm grateful to live in the u.s uh it's still the greatest country in the world and it is a country that can incentivize the creation of a covid vaccine in record time thank god Gen- feel that genuine gratitude um I have felt, I'm glad I remember this because they don't hear it enough these days, on those occasions occasions when I'm walking around New York and I see the NYPD, I have that feeling, that experience of gratitude. Thank God they're there, um, given the unrest in the the city. Um, And I continue to be uh, very grateful for developments regarding Israel and the Middle East. I think it is a remarkable, remarkable thing that we're seeing this year. Uh, someone sent me a video yesterday that I put up on Twitter, if anyone wants to see it, at, at Abe Greenwald, um, of uh, a guy walking around uh, like a supermarket in Dubai. Um, and it's a video of um, this uh, Israeli produce um, on display being sold there um, with full sort of um, Israeli flag designs uh, out in the open, um, for each fruit and, and, and a bit of produce. And um, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's a, it's, it's an amazing turn of events. Noah. I share my colleague's sentiments. I'm not going to say anything new. They covered all the bases. <clears throat> very, very grateful for my family and their health. And um, I'm particularly grateful to commentary magazine, um, which has been a profoundly rewarding place to work even before all this and its stability is, uh, and you know, the, the freedom that it grants you to do what we do for a living, to think for a living is, is an incredible blessing and one for which I was grateful even before, but much more grateful for now. Uh, thankful for my community this year has made my world much smaller and, um, that, that smallness has been, uh, something that is, uh, both, you know, claustrophobic at times, but also uh, very comforting and, and a source of support and one that you can take for granted in years that aren't like 2020. So don't take take it for granted again. 
Um, when it comes to gratitude, I've, I struggle because it's something that I we try to teach our children. And um, it's difficult to teach a young kid um, to be thankful for what they have around them. You know, the, there's a lot of, there's obviously, because you're six, you don't have a whole lot of perspective. And gratitude is a function of perspective. So it's, it's something that I'm not sure can be imposed on someone. You have to learn it. And that learning process can be painful. Um, and no one wants their children to experience the pain that is perhaps necessary to understand the blessings that have been bestowed on them. But I'm not sure if there's any other teacher. Fair enough. Well, I, 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 I echo almost everything that has been said here or everything that has been said here. I am specifically grateful for a couple of things. I am grateful to, as Abe said, the uh, law enforcement officers in the United States who have had to weather this unprecedented assault on their, uh, their integrity, their goodwill, um, and the uh, performance of their, uh, of their uh, dangerous, difficult, and life-enhancing tasks um, that uh, uh, a relatively small but still disgraceful number of people seem to believe are, are valueless or destructive uh, and, and wish to tag everybody with the, with the uh, misconduct of a, of a tiny, tiny few. And that is a terrible thing. So I'm grateful to them that they continue to serve in their jobs. And I'm grateful to those who have left uh, the service um, in, in that way uh, for having done it. And I understand why they would think that their, their lives would be enhanced by trading for a different job where, uh, where their task was not only uh, less dangerous, but less thankless but I'm thankful. Uh, I am very thankful for the people who run my children's schools. These are private schools, one a Jewish school, one a girl's school, um, who have moved heaven and earth to keep school open, to have my kids in school. My kids have all been in school five days a week, which is an, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, you know, these are not, this is not an inexpensive uh, commitment that we've made to having them in schools and it is actually in these schools and it is extraordinarily gratifying to know that they take that so seriously, that financial and personal commitment to them that they have made a, a residual, they have made a, a, a concomitant commitment to us to make sure that our kids are, uh, nourished educationally, sustained emotionally, have the social experience that they can have while going through all of the labors, the social distancing, sitting, you know, apart, uh, wearing masks. Uh, uh, my son, who is in fifth grade, eats lunch at his desk and they are told they are not allowed to speak while they eat. Uh, this is a parochial school where there are prayers every morning. They do not sing them because, of course, singing creates... Um, you know, moisture from the mouth that can spread, that can hit other people and thus, you know, might, might conceivably spread, spread the disease. And yet, nonetheless, they are doing, they're making this happen. And it's really, I'm very grateful for that. Mostly, I will say that I am profoundly grateful, evoking some things that each of you has said 
to both the readers of Commentary Magazine and to the listeners of this podcast. And I'm grateful to you not only for our employee, uh, uh, the fact that people are interested in what we have to say, both on paper, online, and and verbally uh, on this podcast, uh, but because uh, we uh, went through a very complicated journey over the last five years, uh, ideologically, uh, with uh, and 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 uh, uh, trying to maintain our uh, intellectual, partisan, and ideological independence. Uh, at a time when all kinds of cross demands were being made on everybody to show fealty to certain types of people, certain types of actions, the idea that you were disloyal if you did not support X, Y, or Z, or that you were evil if you did not oppose X, Y, or Z, and that kind of thing. And we have tried very hard to maintain, to say what we believe to be true, and to say what we think is right, and to not and and to keep out of our calculations, calculations to not try to think about how we should say things in order to cushion the blow, or how to do things in order to make sure that people don't get mad at us, or that donors don't flee us, or that subscribers don't cancel on us. Because frankly, if we tried to do it, if we tried, even if that were a, something that I was inclined to do, or that we were inclined to do. I don't know that we could succeed at it. I don't, I don't, because I don't know that you can really tell where the fault lines are and how things are going to go. And so at least by, there was a kind of institutional strategy of integrity. I don't know how, I mean, it's, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound self-aggrandizing, but that uh, there was no point in our compromising our integrity in order to save the institution, because I, I have no idea whether that would have worked. And, and so we just called them like we saw them. And to my immense gratitude, uh, the overwhelming majority of our readership, the overwhelming majority of people who have uh, been, um, who have contributed to us uh, as a nonprofit institution, and I would say the overwhelming majority of people who listen to this podcast have been have shown their own gratitude for our efforts uh, in uh, staying with us. Our, 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 we've actually grown by forty percent uh, uh, over the course of the over the Trump years, um, when other conservative publications have seen calamity hit them, and of course the Weekly Standard was shuttered by its uh, repugnant parent company. Uh, and other institutions have gone through, you know, like the, the fires of hell, trying to navigate what we've had to navigate. And our readership, our donors, and our listeners, you you have all been resilient uh, and uh, interested. And I, you know, for that, I can't imagine uh, anything for which I could be more grateful. And so with that, I thank you. We all thank you. We'll be back on Monday. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.